0: Uh, Welcome everyone to this vitally important uh, event. Uh, I'm Fred Kemp, President and CEO of the Atlantic Council. Uh, What you'll hear today is a culmination you could say of a year and a half's work, Um, uh, but it's really much more than that given the experience of our uh, two co-chairs and the uh, vast experience of the community that they reached out to for advice and counsel during this process. Um, This paper, this work, took no shortcuts, there are no cheap tricks. It's a serious analysis of a region whose challenges are inescapable and whose solutions are very difficult to find. I hope you'll find fresh and even somewhat optimistic looks at what can and must be done. Uh, At this time, I'd like to remind you all to silence your cell phones And for those here in the audience and those joining us via the webcast, you can join the Twitter conversation with hashtag ACMEST, hashtag ACMEST. I am so deeply honored to be here with Secretary Madeleine Albright and Steve Hadley, former National Security Advisor, to launch their provocative, insightful, doable, sensible new strategy for the Middle East which they have developed with many in the region, in Europe and here in the United States. Let me also take a moment to thank um, the founding donor of the Rafi Kariri Center for the Middle East, Baha Hariri, for his general support of this initiative and Atlantic Council Board Director Rafik Bisri for his guidance and input throughout the process. Um, The Middle East Strategy Task Force uh, that our two chairs have so generally uh, co-chaired over a year and a half has been a unique effort to both better understand the problems in the Middle East and sketch out what the region itself in conjunction with partners such as the United States can do to put out the fires and adopt a new vision and get us to a much better place. It's a courageous report and it was a courageous effort. Um, and I think during this time I had the honor to spend a great deal of time with the co-chairs and the amazing Atlantic Council team that worked with them. Um, uh, and they often said that this was one of the hardest tasks they've ever taken on, and given the jobs they've had, that says quite a bit. And no doubt it will be one of the hardest tasks that uh, a President-elect Trump and his administration will have to tackle. To execute this project, uh, the Middle East Strategy Task Force brought together a broad array of regional stakeholders and international experts. Uh, It has held nine public events, 40 private roundtables, in addition to conducting a number of consultations in Tunis, Cairo, Amman, Riyadh, Abu Dhabi, Jerusalem, and Ramallah. In other words, uh, the, the ideas you will hear about today were shaped by hundreds of conversations with experts, people from the region, officials. In this way, we believe this report is fundamentally different from other reports out there that aim to delineate a new US strategy for the region. This is about a new strategy for the region with the US and its partners in the region and Europe and partners around the world. It's just a very different way of looking at that. The other thing that makes uh, this approach different is that it takes a more comprehensive, longer-term approach to the region, encompassing themes beyond just immediate security issues. We hope that it will be a roadmap and color uh, the way that this new administration will think about approaching the region. We know it will color the way that the uh, Atlantic Council takes on Middle East issues in the future. We see it as very much a roadmap for our own work. So now let me formally introduce our co-chairs and moderator, and then we'll hear from the co-chairs directly about this report and get into a discussion about them and their findings and their recommendations. After we hear from the co-chairs, we'll play a brief video that explains some of their findings and recommendations. And before we end today's event, we'll also show one more video. The winning short video from our contest that called for stories of hope from the Middle East. And I think that's one of the most striking things that we found as we went around the region is there's just much more hope to tap out there and much more opportunity uh, than a lot of people think. The first place video by Syrian brothers, Ahmed and Amjad Warde does just that. And so I think you'll all be very impressed by this video. Uh, Steve Grand, the executive director of the task force here at the council will tell us more about the contest and video later on. Uh, now, Secretary Albright uh, requires no introduction, but I'll do it anyway. Uh, she was named the first female Secretary of State in 1997 and became, at that time, the highest ranking woman in the history of the U.S. government. She also served as U.S. Permanent Representative to the United Nations from 1993 to 1997. She is currently the chair of Albright Stonebridge Group and an honorary Atlantic Council Board Director. She's played uh, an incredible and, and long going leadership role at the National Democratic Institute. As an author myself, I commend you all to read uh, Prague Winter, which is one of the most brilliant memoirs that I've ever read. Um, she is an inspiration to many in this room and beyond. Uh, Steve Hadley served as National Security Advisor from 2005 to 2009 and as founding partner of Rice-Hadley Gates. He also serves as the Executive Vice Chairman of the Atlantic Council Board of Directors, oversees uh, at the board level uh, everything that we do on strategy. He is also an inspiration to many of us here at the Atlantic Council and beyond. But beyond being a personal inspiration, they also stand for something else that the Atlantic Council stands for. And that is working together across partisan lines to find consensus to tackle the most difficult issues of our time. It's the only way we think things can get done uh, in a tough-minded, pragmatic, results-oriented fashion where sides come together uh, in the interests of the United States and working closely with its friends and allies allies around the world. We do that across all 11 of our programs and centers, but I don't think there's ever been a report uh, that we have put out that has done that the, this so dramatically on such a tough issue. Uh, today, we also have with us Ayman Mouyadine from NBC and MSNBC to moderate the discussion with Secretary Al- Albright and Steve Hadley. Ayman has covered the Iraq War, the 2011 Egyptian and Tunisian revolutions, and numerous other stories in the region, and we're glad to have him here to steer the conversation. So let me now give the floor to our uh, Middle East Strategy, uh, Task Force co-chairs, so they can give a brief presentation of their findings, and I think, Steve, you're going to be going first. No, Secretary Albright's going to be going first. Thank you.
1: Thank you very, very much, Fred, and good afternoon to everybody, and I'm delighted that you're all here. Um, I would um, really like to say thank you to so many people in a non perempt kind of uh, expected way, because people really have worked incredibly hard on... I'm so sorry, I'm so short. Uh, by the way, I, I do think I have to say this. It has been just 20 years that I was named, and during the period of great mentioning, uh, the, there it was said that a woman could never be Secretary of State because Arab leaders would not deal with a woman. And what did happen was the Arab ambassadors at the UN said, we've had no problems dealing with Ambassador Albright. We would not with Secretary Albright. So at this anniversary moment, the fact that I'm dealing with a report with um, a very good friend, Steve Hadley, dealing with the Arab world is kind of an interesting coincidence. uh, 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 Let me just say it has been a real pleasure to be able to do this report at the Atlantic Council and with the support of so many different people. And to have the chance to spend time with members of the diplomatic community and all our senior advisors that put so much time into it and the Hariri Center that really has been incredible and the Freds. Uh, Fred Hoff and Fred Kemp, really fantastic. Thank you very much for all the support. And uh, honestly, I don't think I've ever worked with people like um, Steve Grant and Jess Gashu who really were so fantastic in all your work. So this is not just something I has, one has to say. It, it's absolutely true uh, in terms of the support. I have to say that the bipartisan aspect of this has been very important, but... Doing this with Steve Hadley has been a special honor. He is somebody that I respect greatly, and I think that we have made a good team. So, Steve, thank you very much. Uh, Most of you in this audience are by now familiar with the Middle East Strategy Task Force, as we lovingly call it, MEST with a T on the end. Uh, So I will spend less time discussing the process and more time diving into the substance of our conclusions and recommendations. Uh, But I do think that Steve and I have really approached this whole effort with a great deal of humility. And as uh, Fred Kemp said, we can both attest that this is the most difficult problem we have come across uh, in our careers, uh, because this is not just a crisis in the Middle East, it is a crisis of the Middle East that is affecting the entire globe. Whether it's the massive refugee flows into Europe or the social media inspired terrorist attacks in the West or the way in which the region's civil wars have transformed into proxy conflicts, we are all affected by the toxic brew of challenges centered in the Middle East. The simple fact is that America has vital interests at stake um, in the region including keeping our citizens safe from terrorism, protecting our economy, empowering our allies, and preventing the spread of weapons of mass destruction. So where we come out is that the United States cannot walk away from the Middle East, but we also cannot expect easy answers or quick fixes. What is needed is a durable strategy for the region that reflects the world as it is today. And that's what Steve and I set out uh, to develop throughout this whole project. When we launched this effort, we deliberately sought to, quote, step back from the cycle of fire drills and Band-Aids and crisis response that dominates the discussion in Washington. And we wanted to take a deeper look uh, at what was happening and this I underline, listen to the voices from the Middle East that and that's why we traveled extensively in the region and we consulted experts from the region but also sought perspectives from all levels of society from refugees and students and business leaders and monarchs what we found was that many positive things are happening in the Middle East and I'm going to repeat that we found that many positive things are happening in the Middle East despite some of the dire headlines and across the region Civic activists are working to make their local communities stronger and more resilient. Entrepreneurs are building small and medium-sized businesses rather than relying on the government to be the employer of first resort. And some leaders are beginning to recognize that the region's greatest resource is not its oil, but its people. What we found in our discussions was a sense of confidence and determination despite all the challenges and over and over again we heard people say we are ready we are shaping a vision let us lead but we also heard them say repeatedly that they can't do it alone. There's a genuine desire for outside engagement and a need for outside support but on different terms from those in the past and the days when outside powers could dictate the affairs of the Middle East are over. We recognize, and indeed we welcome, that reality. And that's why our report calls for a new strategic approach emphasizing partnership. Under this new approach, the people and governments of the region will need to take the lead in defining a positive vision for the region's future and trying to realize it. But the international community has an interest in their success and should do what we can to help them achieve their vision. So to that end, our report envisions a two-pronged action agenda with roles for both regional and outside actors. The first prong focuses on endorsing uh, Excuse me, the first prong focuses on ending the human suffering and winding down the civil wars, which we see as a critical precondition for any progress being achieved on security matters across the region. So we are endorsing the fact that we have to deal from the outside with some of these critical issues. The civil wars are opening the door for Daesh and Al Qaeda, they are fueling sectarian violence causing civilian deaths and refugee flows, and increasing the confrontation between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So they need to be resolved if we're to defeat the terrorist groups, tamp down sectarianism, and end the humanitarian suffering. The region has to participate in ending these wars, but our examination of the issues convinced us that outside powers have an essential role to play in brokering an end to these conflicts. There's simply no way around that fact. And in a moment, Steve will discuss specific recommendations on the steps the United States and Europe, working with the region and other external powers can take to achieve sustainable political um, settlements. But we recognize that such settlements will not, by themselves, address the root causes of the civil wars, which were largely failures in governance. And for that reason, the second prong of our strategy is vitally important. It puts the burden on regional actors with support from external powers to unlock the region's rich but largely untapped human capital. This is the only way to solve the region's challenges over the long term, but it requires governments to make investments in their citizens and to enable and empower them to bring positive change. We recognize that some leaders in the region may be skeptical about this approach, and for that reason, we think it'll be important for outside powers to create incentives for reform. If the United States and other outside powers are to make the investment in brokering settlements to the region's conflicts, they're entitled to expect the governments in the region to take steps to address the underlying societal grievances that helped lead to the violence in the first place. The report recommends that we codify these mutual expectations into a compact for the Middle East. Under this compact, the states that adopt reforms would gain greater diplomatic, economic, and technical support. Steve will describe some of the specific reforms we believe are necessary, but before I turn this over to him, I want to address some in the audience who might think we're being overly optimistic or unrealistic in our approach. We understand that many Americans regard the Middle East as a mess. Uh, They see that America has been heavily engaged there for 15 years and do not think that there's much to show for it. But what our study showed uh, and really showed us is that there is more to the region than the headlines suggest. There are young people, including women, that are educated and empowered, who are starting businesses and trying to lead their communities to address local issues. There are governments, such as in Tunisia, Jordan, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia, which are moving in a new and more positive direction. In other words, there is something to work with. There are what we call green shoots of progress that need our support, and countries that need our sustained engagement, and that's what this task force Uh, recommendations are all about. With that, I would now like to invite my partner and good friend, Steve Hadley, to come up to the podium and he will further flesh out some of the key elements of the strategy and then we will have an opportunity to have a discussion. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Madeline, very much for your remarks. Thank you for your friendship and thank you for your leadership throughout this effort. It would not have happened without you. Um, Madeline has described the key components of the report. We begin with a new strategic approach that emphasizes partnership with outside powers acting in support of efforts led by and from the region. This complementary division of effort represents a new compact between regional and outside powers. The more countries in the region take steps to improve their governance and the lives of their people, <clears throat> the more support they can expect from the United States and international partners. As, Ma- as Madeline mentioned, we propose a two-pronged action agenda to implement this new compact. And what I want to do, as Madeline suggested, is lay out the elements of this two-pronged agenda, so that you can see how we might be able to wind down the violence in the region and how we might at the same time begin now to invest in a more positive future for the region. With respect to winding down the civil wars, it is our view that the countries of the Middle East do not yet have the wherewithal to resolve these conflicts on their own. The United States, working with regional powers and other external actors, including Europe, Russia, and China, must help the region arrange and then enforce sustainable political settlements to the conflicts. Iraq is the first opportunity. As Daesh is stripped of its caliphate and expelled from its territory, the people of Iraq have the opportunity to create more legitimate, and effective governance. They can insist on a more inclusive national government that empowers and resources provincial and local authorities so that Iraq's various communities can take more responsibility for their own governance, security, and welfare. The United States can help by encouraging what we call this new model of national governance and enlisting neighboring states and external powers in support of it. To start to wind down the civil war in Syria will require convincing all parties to the conflict that it is militarily unwinnable. This will require expanding and accelerating US-led military operations against Daesh and Al-Qaeda. Both Madeline and I believe that it would be a mistake to make common cause with the Syrian government, which is led by a barbarous dictator backed by Iran. Instead, we must increase humanitarian protection for the civilians that Assad is targeting and give greater support to those moderate opposition groups who will form the backbone of Syria's future. In addition to stemming refugee flows, forestalling terrorist attacks, and improving overall regional stability, a just resolution to the Syrian conflict would help deter and contain Iran's efforts to disrupt and destabilize its its neighbors. We also need concerted efforts to resolve the wars in Yemen and Libya. Libya. history dictates a leading role for our European partners. Still, American leadership will be required to help galvanize a currently divided Europe and rally external players, including several in the Middle East, to provide unified support to the government of national accord rather than to various regional factions. In Yemen, Outside actors must help Saudi Arabia to prioritize a political resolution to the conflict. At the same time, Houthi military operations near and across the Saudi border must stop. Like Syria, Yemen has become a humanitarian cast- catastrophe, requiring the mitigation efforts of outsiders and regional players alike. And counterterrorism efforts against al Qaeda's branch there must continue. To sustain progress as the civil wars are wound down, the region needs a regional framework for bringing together all of its states in building confidence, resolving disputes, and developing a set of principles that can guide the future stability of the region. The initiative for this needs to come from the Middle East, but it will need support from outside powers. As hard as it is to envision a resolution to these wars, it is still only part of the solution to what ails the Middle East. For at the same time, and with equal urgency, the countries of the Middle East must seek to unlock their most valuable resource, their people. And this is what we refer refer to as prong two of the strategy. It means restructuring educational systems to give the next generation the knowledge and critical thinking skills needed to help build 21st century economies and to resist terrorist and sectarian propaganda. It means Big Bang regulatory reforms to create an ecosystem in which trade, investment, entrepreneurship, and innovation can thrive. It means governments creating more space for citizens to come together to resolve their own problems and to build better societies. And it means an updated social contract with governments in the region acting more effectively, inclusively, and justly in empowering their citizens to realize their full potential and to win their loyalty. To sustain these efforts, We believe the Middle East needs a regional development fund for reconstruction and reform. A set of funds, really, to provide financial support and technical assistance for building new physical and social infrastructure and to support all elements of society from the national governments down to the individual citizens. The region needs to take the lead in creating and financing these funds but it is in the interest of the United States and the rest of the international community to match their efforts. So based on what we've heard from the region, that is what we believe is required. And it is a daunting agenda. A new strategic approach based on partnership with the region in the lead. A compact and division of labor between regional and outside powers a two-pronged action agenda to complement and to implement this compact, a new model of national governance, Big Bang regulatory reform, an updated social contract, a regional framework for security and stability, and a regional development fund for reconstruction and reform. If you take all this together and boil it down fundamentally It is a bet on the people of the region and a strategy to empower them. We know it is far from a sure winner, but we think it is the only way forward. What we are asking of Middle East leaders is daunting, and therefore external actors must be unsparing in their encouragement and support. But the choice is clear. Create a foundation for a new order of enhanced political legitimacy or succumb to unending crisis, instability, and terrorism, either empower citizens or watch power devolve into the hands of criminals and terrorists. States that do not find a way to give a role to their citizens will force those citizens into the street or into the arms of the terrorists. This is an outcome that would satisfy no one, including the incoming administration. Obviously, the president-elect and his team will need to grapple early on with what to do with the Middle East. The approach Madeline and I are suggesting here is not inconsistent with what President-elect Trump has said about the Middle East. It prioritizes destroying Daesh and al-Qaeda, as he has. It does not require a massive military intervention with large numbers of ground forces. At the same time, it will help check Iran's hegemonic activity. And it recognizes that U.S. allies in the region must do more for themselves. For nearly a century, Stability in the Middle East has been understood to be the responsibility of outside powers, whether it was the British Empire or the United States of America. Those days are over, not because of the U.S. presidential election, but because the region now has the will and the capacity to take the lead in providing for its own future. The Middle East still needs American help. But there is more cause for hope than most in Washington realize. And that is what we've tried to capture in our report and in our recommendations. And now we'd like to play a short video that highlights some of the task force key findings that Madeline and I have just shared. And you can find this video on mest.atlanticcouncil.org. So thank you again. We're delighted that you're all here and we look forward to our discussion with you after the video. Thanks very much.
3: One of the most important resources in the Middle East and North Africa is One of the most important resources in the Middle East and North Africa is the region's youth. The region is experiencing a demographic youth surge that, depending on how governments respond, could present a liability or an exciting possibility to shape a new generation's future. It's true that youth unemployment is a major concern in the region. Combined with stagnant growth, a skills mismatch between job seekers and the private sector, and government regulations that push many into the informal economy, the challenges facing youth are daunting. But despite the current challenges facing youth, there is reason for hope. Young people in the Middle East are eager to make their own success. Challenging stereotypes of Arab youth seeking cushy government jobs, many aspire to start their own businesses and launch civic initiatives. The region's youth are entrepreneurial, highly motivated, and actively engaged in trying to build a bright future. Still, these young people need more help realizing these ambitions. Even small amounts of funding, technical training, or in kind assistance can go a long way toward catalyzing valuable bottom up initiatives that improve local and regional communities, economies, and governance. There are also signs that some governments in the region are seeking to harness the power of this demographic potential. The United Arab Emirates has launched Dubai Future Accelerators, an intensive startup program to seek out the region's best innovators. Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030 program focuses on expanding opportunities for youth, including young women, in the private sector. Meanwhile, young people and vibrant civil society organizations across the Middle East and North Africa continue to hold politicians accountable and define for themselves an active role in shaping the futures of their countries. The Atlantic Council's Middle East Strategy Task Force, co-chaired by former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and former National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley, believes that the United States can help catalyze these positive developments that are already happening in the region. By forming what we call a new compact with the region, the United States and other international partners can use security, diplomatic, economic, and technical support as an incentive for positive reforms. In order to help change the current trajectory of the Middle East, this strategy must attract the participation and support of the citizens, leaders, and states of the region. This is a key tenet of the Middle East Strategy Task Force, which wagers that a connected, worldly, well-educated, and empowered citizenry can, over time, build better societies that will transform the region and benefit the world.
4: who has spent the better part of the last 15 years covering some of these uh, conflicts and revolutions that are unfolding in the Middle East. And uh, if any of you are wondering about my beard, I'm not going overseas anytime soon. In fact, uh, it's the last day of November and I've been participating in some cancer research, so raising this beard for some good fun. So just to, if there's any doubts in here. Um, I'd like to invite (laughs) Madam Secretary and Stephen Hadley back on the stage so we can uh, begin this uh, discussion. It was really interesting to hear so many of these issues that you've outlined, particularly the first prong of these issues with the, the conflict zones that are unfolding and, or the war zones that are unfolding in Syria and Libya and Yemen, um, other countries, Somalia, Sudan, we didn't even touch upon those. But the good news is we're going to try to address some of these issues in about 30 minutes. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's going to be a daunting task. I, I wanted to start off by asking, as somebody who has traveled in the region and, and heard many of these points that you guys addressed in this report, you're describing this as a new strategic approach, and I'd like to ask you what makes it new? What is new about this report that we have not seen come out of Washington before in terms of how to deal with the Middle East and the Middle East itself?
1: Well, first of all, thank you very much for doing this, and again, thank you all for being here. I think that what is new is the fact that we have recognized more clearly, I think, than has done before, is that this cannot be ordered from the outside. That this really is dependent on local initiatives and supporting those local initiatives. Um, and it, it's kind of interesting in terms of that um, we have understood the importance of doing the civil, ending the civil wars, and then also looking at what the economy and the development issues are and the governance issues. So we have brought all those questions together and then have looked at how they interact with each other. I also do think that what is out there, and this needs to be stated over and over again, this is very, um, I think, something that's very ambitious. It's not going to happen overnight. So I think that the thing that we've said, not only that we've approached this with humility, but understand this is not one of those things. Americans are the most generous people in the world with the shortest attention span. So the bottom line is we have to figure, understand that this is uh, with the locals, uh, with a a regional approach. The uh, outsiders can help. We have to approach this with humility and understanding and know that it's going to take a long time. I think that's what makes it different instead of fire drills.
4: Stephen, one of the points that you were talking about was that the U.S. has been engaged so much in the Middle East for the better part of the last 100 years. Um, There are some who say the U.S. should cut its ties, retreat a little bit from the Middle East. It's a mess. It's not something we can fix. It's not something we can solve. We have built up our counterterrorism operations. We've been able to secure ourselves a little bit more. W- what's at stake for the United States to be so engaged in the Middle East? Why is it so important to, to, to remain a, a participant
2: there? Well, as, as Madeleine talked about it, uh, you know, everybody says, well, the Middle East is about the oil. And, of course, we've never gone to war in the Middle East over oil. It has been about terrorism. It's been about threats to our allies. It has been about uh, worries about the economic impact of the region as a whole if it, uh, if it descends into into chaos. Uh, it's about uh, avoiding proliferation that could destabilize. Look, you know, for those people who think the Middle East is not strategic and that Syria is not strategic, you know, who would have thought that refugee flows from Syria would propel Brexit. Uh, radicalize European politics and threaten the future of the EU and uh, a decades-long commitment of the United States and Europe to build a Europe whole, free, and a peace. I don't know anything that's more strategic than that. So we have strategic interests in the Middle East. And we have tried, uh, I think, over the last eight years to do a more step-back approach. I mean, nobody wanted less to be involved in the Middle East than President Obama. Uh, for for good reasons. That's what he ran on, that's what he was elected on. And he has been involved, been dragged back into the Middle East. We've got over 6,000 troops in, in Iraq. We've got uh, uh, tens if not hundreds in Syria. So this is a problem that isn't going away, that has strategic interests for the United States, that we've tried stepping back and it hasn't worked. And what we've tried to say is there is a different smarter way of engaging with the Middle East that does not require a Marshall Plan or a 2003 Iraq invasion, that can support the efforts from the region, and is consistent with both our interests and what we think the American people and this new administration is willing to support. It's a, it's a virtuous coincidence that what is actually required under this new approach is probably the limit but what the American people and the new administration can sustain. I need to say one other thing. Uh, I hope you all read this report, but there are five working group reports that were prepared in preparation for this final report. They're on the website. Of, of the Atlantic Council. And they're terrific read. I mean, some of the chairmen are here. Ken Pollack is here. We, we stole a lot of the ideas from work, his, uh, his report. Mike Morell is here. Mike Morell is the source of the new compact idea that came, one of our senior advisor work. So I would commend the other five working group papers for you. They are terrific.
4: One of the criticisms that has come out of the region, especially when you speak to young people, as I have over the years, is that the big challenge is reforming or moderating some of the governments that we're dealing with. Um, I I don't have to tell everyone here in the room, but some of the criticisms from human rights organizations and others, you're talking about a new compact. What does that new compact look like between the citizens of the Arab world and the governments of the Arab world?
1: I think what is interesting, and again, what we saw when we were there, people talk about the youth bulge. We don't want to bulge. So it's a surge. It is something positive. And what I think is really visible when we were there were the various governments did in fact see the value of their youth. Um, What I found fascinating, for instance, in Saudi Arabia, uh, the deputy crown prince has set up a foundation, we met with a lot of the young people there that are um, not just budding entrepreneurs but some of them have really already undertaken things they see themselves as part of the solution. What also interesting in Saudi Arabia was the minister of education who was somebody who had criticized the educational system was then made minister of education and really brought us the idea in terms of having a different kind of system I think the hardest part really has been here. We, all of us from the West, have patronized the Middle East. It is time to stop talking about it in that particular way and recognize that the changes, we need to understand the strength of the changes coming from there. And governments, for the most part, would like to figure out how to engage their populations. That does not mean that from the outside, not just the U.S., but other partners need to keep pointing out you could do this better, Uh, we could help you more, uh, and you can help yourselves more if you approach things from a different angle and not tell your people what to do, but really... Uh, seek their input and be a part of it. It's definitely there. And social media has been uh, both positive and negative there, but the the positive aspect is that it has allowed the young people to have a more active voice.
4: Stephen, do you think that these reforms, some of these points that uh, Madam Secretary was highlighting in Saudi Arabia, the economic development plan, are are more than cosmetic lip service? How deep-rooted do you think some of the intentions are of the governments to try to genuinely reform their societies,
2: make them more democratic, more pluralistic? Uh, it depends. Uh, and in some sense, it's, it's early days. Uh, we talk about an updated social contract. That really means these governments using their people, empowering their people to be allies and participants in developing the future of their countries. That's what we're talking about. And uh, UAE seems to really get that and to be, it seems to be farther along than any of other countries in the region in reforms that will enable that kind of process. Saudi Arabia seems to be starting that process with this Vision 2030 and the transformation implementation plan that they have developed. You certainly see it in Tunisia, which really is uh, moving in a democratic direct, direction, largely on the strength and with the, in, the midwife, mid- midwifery if you will, of civil yeah. society. So we think it's, it's starting. But it's not every place. Um, and it has obviously a ways to go. And, you know, a- one is a- it
4: stalled in some places, in some countries?
2: It's not happening in some places. And, you know, we've talked to most of these leaders. And, you know, I think what people will say is, how can you get an authoritarian, military leader, I'm not mentioning any names, <laughs> how can you get an authoritarian military leader to do something that seems so antithetical to empower their people? And I think the answer is that if, in some sense, if they do not, they will not achieve what they seek, which is long term stability and prosperity. There was a, an economist article just out yesterday on a UN update of the UN Arab Development Report, which makes this very point. Unemployment in youth, disempowerment of youth, trapped in societies that don't give them an opportunity, unable to travel, it's a time bomb. And we really believe that these countries are going to have to understand, and will over time come to understand, they have to empower their people or they will push them into the streets and they will push them into the arms of the terrorists. Uh,
4: Madam Secretary, you made in your remarks, uh, used the uh, expression, incentivize some of the governments for reforms. Do you think there should be punishment for these governments if they do not heed the warnings of their people or, or push through some of the reforms or some of the issues? That the international community has set as standards for good governance?
1: Well, um, I teach a course on the national security toolbox. And um, we all have the same tools, whatever country. The bottom line is how to use them in some kind of syncopated way. The bottom line is if you're never involved with a country, then you can't take anything away. Uh, and therefore, I think that there are ways that there can be. Uh, Well, or through the international system, the International Monetary Fund or a variety of putting on a certain set of conditions. I do think that one should incentivize them, but also realize that, and not just the United States, the, the community and this development bank that we're talking about will, in fact, or should have the capability of, um, I hate to use any loaded words, but rewarding those that actually are doing something. I also think it is a huge mistake not to say what we think, all of us. Steve very clearly said that Assad is somebody whose barbarous ways of behaving makes it very difficult to deal in fact when we know that a political settlement is important but if all of a sudden we kind of think that okay well it's all right then we undermine our own set of principles that then would incentivize in so many ways Um, these people that, um, the young people, and by the way, we have also said that refugees are not just a burden. They can also be uh, a very important um, kind of uh, resource for the societies in which they live. So I think we have to tell it like it is, but at the same time be supportive of those within the system that are willing to change.
2: When we went to our trip in the region, we talked to some of the leaders of these countries and we said, look, we are gonna say That you can't crack down your way to stability and social peace. That you've got to open the door for your people. And we are also going to say that those countries that adopt those policies should be rewarded by the international community with financial assistance, technical support, and the loss and the like. Not because we're punishing those countries that don't, but because those countries that don't will quite frankly be a bad investment. And we want to invest. In those things that we are convinced are really the path to a more stable, secure, and prosperous Middle East. This is not about punishment; it is to reward and enable the kind of behavior that we think is going to lead to uh, a more stable Middle East.
4: If we can, a little bit, not relitigating the past, but as officials who have served in the U.S. government, what mistakes has the U.S. made in? its policies in the region. By,
1: by the way, one of the things that we decided is that we would not blame each other for the past. I've had a harder time with that.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hard to talk about the Middle East without American involvement, mistakes that have been made in the past, but what can we take from this report for us back here for policymakers coming into the new administration and what have you? And what can we learn about what well, can, we can do different?
1: Let me just basically, I, I'm not trying to avoid answering this, but I worked for a president who read a lot and who assigned <laughs> books to us. So one that President Clinton assigned to me was called The Peace to End All Peace by David Fromkin. Yeah. And the past is what has definitely haunted the whole area. Uh, it, and the short version of the book is that the modern Middle East was created by the British and French bureaucracies lying to each other. Uh, And from then on, different ways that we were telling them what to do. I think that's part of the mistakes that have gone on. And what we've been trying to figure out, and we've spent a lot of time talking about this, is how we can be supportive without being bossy. I think, you know, without telling them all the time, you're doing it wrong, you're doing this wrong, These are, we've learned, I think we have actually learned a lot from the mistakes by not understanding fully what is going on in the countries and thinking that we can... Um, march in and solve everything or pick the leaders or, uh, you know, we can help them design their not, their regulatory system, but we can't say do it the way the Americans do. And and I really do think the past has been very long and filled with mistakes, certainly before World War One, but from World War One on, and we are all paying for the mistakes that have been made over those hundred years.
2: Stephen, I'll give you a chance as well to... Well, I think the strategy laid out in the report reflects what we've learned. First thing we did was we spent a lot of time trying to hear what the Middle East was saying so that we had some ground truth of what the expectations were of the region. I think what we found is that there's a lot more to work with than we thought. And that's the message we have for Washington. There's a lot more going on than is present in the Washington debate, and it gives us something to work with. But it also allows us to, I think, something we've also learned from the past. The local countries and peoples need to own it. It has to be their vision. And it's going to stand or fall on what they do to rebuild their own countries. We cannot uh, you know nation building is is flawed in this sense. You cannot build another nation. The people and institutions of that nation are going to have to build it themselves that 's what we 've learned, and the question is, can we have a strategy that enables and empowers that effort so the people of the region can build those? those I have to say that this is almost the like the first time i 've heard somebody in Washington
4: say they want to bet on the people of the Middle East. That in itself is somewhat of a paradigm shift for. Yep for Washington, D.C. I'm curious to get your thoughts based on this report, based on your findings. What happens when the will of the Arab people comes in contrast with the United States on issues of security, on issues of military involvement? That was an issue that that was in the report, enabling US military operations is a cornerstone of American foreign policy. What happens at that point when there is that intersection of uh, contrasting interests?
1: Well, I do think that it will happen. And it happens with some of our best friends in Europe that we have spent a lot of time with. I think then the issue is how you use diplomatic means to have those discussions. And let me just say this. I have now been in so many meetings where somebody who thinks they're really smart patronizes people in the Middle East, Uh, you know, calls them camel drivers or whatever. I mean, I think basically what is very important is to understand we are dealing with sovereign nations that do have different interests. And we spend diplomacy a great deal of time is putting yourself into the shoes of the other person and trying to recognize what their national interests are. And the bottom line is I think that as we went through this, I think we saw more and more aspects of common national interests. Basically um, I think We've heard this a number of times, I have in all my life, is we can't just say some people are never ready for democracy. Some people don't know how to govern themselves. We're all the same. And I think when people have the tools to do it, then we need to recognize it. But we also need to recognize we will have disagreements. This is not going to, but it can't be zero-sum. It has to be where we can recognize what they're doing. And when, uh, as Steve uh, explained what our US national interests are, it obviously does have to do with fighting terrorism and and trying to to be respectful of each other and education and not having crises all the time. I think if we put ourselves into the shoes of the people in those countries, they will have the same national interests.
2: And I think in the short run, what we hear from the region is very much what is in America's interest. Nobody likes Daesh and ISIS in the region. And they want them out, and they want this caliphate done away with. That's an area of commonality. No one likes these civil wars and the, and the wreckage they are imposing on their societies. We've got to get them. Well, that's in, in our interest uh, as well they they need more productive economies. Well, that the Middle East can contribute to our economic growth and the economic growth of the globe as a whole. And finally, the aspirations we hear about what people in the region say they need for stability. Uh, there's some polling data in the report that that even those uh, people in sort of the most sectarian, Countries like Syria and Iraq say the number one problem is the lack of inclusive governance in which all participate. Well, that's, that's very much consistent with American principles of how you build an inclusive and s- sustainable social order. So if you look at the agenda in the Middle East now, we're all pulling in the same direction. And you know, down the road, there'll be differences, you know, and we will, we will resolve those differences in the same way we resolve the differences we have with our closest allies. But fundamentally, what the region is saying they want is very much consistent with what is in American interests.
4: Hey, I'm going to open up to questions on the floor in just a minute. Uh, just one, one, or, one or two more quick questions, and then we'll open it up to the floor for the rest of the discussion. Um, I'd like to ask about two important issues uh, in the Middle East, uh, Iran. Do you feel that the trends that you saw in this report are also applicable to Iran in terms of uh, some of the comments that you got from young people in the region in terms of what role Iran can play in terms of its governance and what well, have
1: We may differ on this, but my sense really is if you study the Iranian population, the population is very oriented towards change and education and uh, being part of the world. They clearly have a uh, governance issue They have divisions there. I think we have to understand that. I do think that from my perspective, the Iran nuclear deal is a very big deal because in fact, it talks about common interest or it's based on uh, shared national interests in some way. And I think that's why we need to pursue it without in fact leaving out completely Iranian behavior in other places. But everything that I've heard about the Iranian population Uh, is, in fact, that they are forward-looking. We have a tendency to miss signals. In 1998, when Khatami was elected, I spent a lot of time on this, they missed signals that we were sending. We missed signals from them, so we need a better dialogue.
2: Stephen. I just would say that if the kind of change we're talking about really takes root in places like the UAE and uh, Tunisia and Saudi Arabia and Jordan and elsewhere, and ultimately begins to take root in Egypt, the Iranian people will be watching. And I think that kind of progress will give hope to the Iranian people that in their future at some point, they will have an opportunity to take more responsibility for the future of their country. In some sense, it will keep hope alive in Iran.
4: And final question uh, to both of you on the Israel-Palestinian front. Obviously, it's always been a a cornerstone of U.S. uh, engagement in the region, but also uh, one of the biggest uh, grievances that continues that it has not been resolved yet among Arab youth particularly. Did you get a sense that it remains a central issue for young Arabs uh, across the region, or has the Arab world shifted beyond that particular conflict being resolved?
1: Well, let me say, interestingly enough, we did not spend a lot of time uh, discussing that. But what is clear, having spent some time on this, is that basically... Um, there are those who believe the Israeli-Palestinian issue is central to everything that's ever gone wrong in the Middle East. That is not true, nor is it seen that way. It has to be resolved for its own purposes. Uh, but I think that um, it, it was not kind of uh, central all in, in terms of uh, clearly in some of our discussions, I just know that people say, well, it's all the fault of what's happening in the Israeli-Palestinian issue. That was clear that it was not, that it has to be resolved for its own purpose. Can I just say, I think... I don't want you all to think that we have gone kind of idealistically crazy <laughs> and that everything will be fine. If you read this, you see that we have been very clear about the difficulties of this. We understand the importance of what is going on in the region. We know that we can't walk away from it. It is against U.S. national interest to walk away from it. So the question is, how do you segment it enough to be able to be problem solvers on it? And I think what we have done... I hope that people see it this way, is a road map to get there. Now we have to make sure that the roadmap is taken out of the glove compartment. And that there really is a look as to how it can be followed.
2: And I'll just say one thing. I, uh, for some of you who know me, you may be surprised uh, that I would support <laughs> the findings in this report. You know, I've spent my whole life in government doing top-down stuff, you know, geopolitics and all the rest. And one of the things I've learned since I've left government uh, a lot of it from the U.S. Institute of Peace, where I chair, chair the board, uh, a lot of it in connection with this, is the power of the bottom up uh, as a and, and the power of people to be participants in their own future. And I was sort of dragged, kicking and screaming, to conclude that this really is the way forward. For the region, it's got to be top down and bottom up. And that's what we tried. And as we say at USIP, from the inside out. And that's what we've tried to capture in this report.
4: I I was actually going to ask you the final question, but you already answered it, which was what would you, based on what you've learned in this report, what would you go back and tell your former self as national security advisor? (laughs) You made a lot of mistakes.
1: (laughs) I didn't say that. I I (laughs) didn't. (laughs)
4: <laughs> All right. We'll, uh, we'll go ahead and open it for questions. We'll start from the front and work our way back. Go ahead. Right here, Mel. Yep. So. If you can also tell us uh, who you're with, please, as well. That'd be great.
5: I will. Thank you. I'm Barbara Slaven. I'm here at the Atlantic Council where I chair a program on Iran, so good to hear your comments and always good to see both of you. Uh, The question is about public diplomacy and, in particular, things like the International Visitors Program, the kind of people-to-people diplomacy that the United States has been famous for. How important is that uh, in general? What would you tell the next administration about giving visas to people to come from countries where perhaps we've had some differences in the past, like Iran? Uh, Should they allow their security concerns to overcome programs that have proven that they build goodwill for the United States. Thank you.
2: So I'll take that. Look, after 9-11, uh, for all kinds of understandable reasons, we really clamped down on people coming to the United States from the Arab world. And I think you know other people know this better, but I think the number of students coming from Saudi Arabia went down into the low thousands. And one of the things we concluded was there is a way to balance your security leads and still have an open door to young people to come to this country. And I think there are now over 200,000 Saudis studying this country. Well, the fact that you now, I think, have such support among Saudi youth for Vision 2030 is in part because of the experience we gave these young people when they came studying the United States and they went home. And they are going to be the foot soldiers of bringing to fruition Vision 2030. So the message I think we would both send to this new administration is there already is a lot of screening. If it needs to be toughened up for security reasons, that's fine. But it is hugely in the interest of the United States to be investing in these youth and have these youth come over Uh, participate in a society, be educated, and ultimately go home because they will be agents of the kind of change that ultimately will bring the stability and security that is in our interest to have emerge in the Middle East.
1: Can I just add to that? I think that we have to be really careful not to participate in the fear factor. What just happened at Ohio State is very worrying, and the way that it is being interpreted is exceptionally worrying. And we have to understand that people in the region actually hear what the people in the United States say. (laughs) I am a professor. It makes a big difference when we have students in the region in classes. Uh, and also, when Americans go to the various places. That is what the basis of all this is. And we cannot allow ourselves to be dominated by the fear factor. The vetting process is very long and very good. And so I think that is where we just have to remember that where there's an echo chamber to everything that is tweeted.
4: Yeah, we have to have confidence in our institutions and our authorities. Okay, Kim?
5: Good afternoon. Uh, Kim Gattas with the BBC. Thank you very much uh, for this, uh, this report and this event. Um, it's heartening to hear, uh, Madam Secretary, what you just said about uh, the Middle East or the, the, the United States having often patronized uh, the Middle East. I think it's an overdue recognition that we in the region do have a part to play in advancing our own future. Um, It does, however, seem to come at a rather inopportune time, at a time when in the United States we have a president-elect who, from what we can see so far, although we don't know much yet about uh, the details of his policy towards the region, but from what we can see will probably favor uh, strongmen in the region. I'm not sure whether he will be open to the idea of empowering uh, people in the region, and that will have consequences for the abilities of people in the region to push for reform. So I'm curious to hear both of your views on whether you think President Trump will be open to this report and how and if you are already pushing uh, that message with with him and people around him.
2: We don't know. Uh, I think we have to give the president-elect some time to get his feet on the ground, to get his team in place. And to decide what his initiatives are going to be. We tried to point out in this report ways in which what we're recommending is very consistent uh, with some of the things he said. Um, in terms of empowering people, we're, we're going to have to see. Uh, but you know, one of the things I think, two things I would say presidents have preconceptions, but events matter, and events drive them and events are teachers sometimes of hard lessons. So he will have some preconceptions, and then he will put them into practice, and events will tell. Uh, and as I say, events, I think, will have the effect of, of, of driving in him in, in certain directions. Second thing is the United States can do a lot. Certainly for the top-down, resolving the civil wars, I think our role is going to be essential. We can do a lot to support the the prong too, the, uh, the the second set of things we talked about, but the future of those really are going to be in the hands of the region, and you know you say it, it can have an impact, but you know this is a this is a two-way street, and the region has said they want to step up and take leadership, and I would say do it do it. We will hope that the United States new administration will support you. But don't wait. Your future, you've got to take your future in your own hand. One last anecdote, if I can talk, say. A lot of people, one person who heard some of our views came up to me and said, well, have you talked to the Saudis or the folks in UAE about whether they're willing to surrender power to their people in the end of the day or it's all this window dressing? And we had one meeting with a minister who said, look, Look at the demographics. Look at the youth. Look at what they are demanding. We have started a process, and we understand that the destination of that process is that our people will have a more of a hand in resolving our future. The demographics are going to drive us there. That's why I say you know, facts are going to drive policies in some of these areas.
1: Can I also say, I think that what is important is the government is not the only actor in all of this. And uh, the private sector can play a very large role, Um, uh, the educational institutions, and also no longer doing track one as I used to. I'm very much into track two, three, four, and five. (laughs) Uh, And there are any number of other ways to have these relationships. And I think that is something that people should feel encouraged about.
4: Uh, right here, this gentleman here. We'll take a few more questions on this side and I'll come to this side of the room as well. Go ahead.
6: Oda Aberdeen with the Capital Trust Group. The major issue as I see it, it's jobs, jobs, jobs. As the population increases, that issue becomes more and more difficult. the, the region has a lot of capital, there's a lot of liquidity. Yet, the region has not created jobs. I just came back from China. In 1978, the per, cap- per capita income in China was $155 a year. Can
2: you all hear him? Yes. Can you raise the mic uh, up? Uh,
6: I said the, the per capita income in China in '78 was $155. Today, it's above $7,000. Yeah. In the Middle East, it's the reverse. You talk about it's not only for the government to inject itself
7: the and, and reform.
6: There. But if you look at the private sector in the final analysis, the private sector is dependent on these governments. Okay. Therefore, we need to create new entrepreneurs. And to be an entrepreneur, you have to go beyond the culture of trading. You have to go into the culture of taking risks. The banks in the Middle East are loaded with cash. But if you want to go and start a venture capital.
4: Sir, thank you very much. We, we want to get to some of the questions. I, anyway, I, your, your point is very well taken. Thank you very much. Uh, John Gannon, go ahead.
8: Thank you very much, it's very nice to see you, finally. I come from Georgetown University. I am formerly in the intelligence community. And going back, uh, Madam Albright, you would know, uh, in the 90s, and Steve also, th- there was hope, I thought, in the region then at that time. And so when I look back, I'm, I'm doing it optimistically. I think in the period of the 90s from the Oslo Accords, r- right to 98, when when the negotiations collapsed, I thought we saw a lot of hope in the region being expressed by the people, and and to some degree by the governments, and, I, and, and my sense is that we were. We're also dealing with incentives. We weren't trying to impose solutions. Some some could argue we were, but we we there, there were incentives there certainly for the Palestinians and the Israelis to to, to cooperate. But I think what we discovered was that that um, governance really was the major issue that, that that we were we were dealing with in that region. The demographics were quite similar at the time that we, we were talking about a youth bulge. In the, at the, uh, in the year 2000, when when the CIA did a global trend study, we uh, were talking about the, uh, repressive Arab governments that were uh, denying women education, uh, d- denying their people really participation in their economies, uh, the youth bulge, raising expectations about unemployment the governments couldn't fulfill. So we, we talked about the crisis that was at hand that these governments didn't respond. But, and at the end of the day, what we discovered is that the the kind of exhortation about the need to do things differently runs into the to the harsh politics on the ground so uh, uh i'm very anxious to read fully the reports that you that you've uh, put together but I'm wondering what if you're looking at you know a track one, two, or three, or four in, in the track one where are the where do you think there is a potential for the early successes that we haven't been able to enjoy in getting the governance of particularly of these Arab states to pay more attention to the aspirations of their people?
1: Well, I think the hardest part is to try to get across that the governments actually will be better off if they empower their people, that the people are not the enemy and that they are the resource. And some of the governments and the leaders that we talked to got it, I think. And the question is, it's not the people versus the government. Um, I do think that um, the issues here are some of education, but also, of. first of all, I am chairman of the National Democratic Institute. This I can tell you, you cannot impose democracy. That is an oxymoron. What you have to do is to be able to try to figure out what is happening there and strengthen various parts of the civil society. I found fascinating in various places when and where we met with civil society people and not have them be seen as the enemy of the government and those governments that are succeeding are those that in fact are able to see the strength of their people. Also, believe it or not, they do look to some of the Western governments for examples. So when we go and say it's really important to build coalitions, they say, yeah, like you guys. So the bottom line is I think that we can also give some better examples of how to move forward.
2: Uh, John, you're right. I, I ran across a letter that John Kennedy wrote to the Saudi king at the time saying, you know, we will support you on your security, but you need to do some governance reform. So this has been a narrative. What's different uh, is that governments in the region and people in the region are focusing on governance and failures of governance as what led to Daish and al-Qaeda. And therefore, the conclusion that you've got to remedy the, guys, the governance if you're going to be rid of Daish and al-Qaeda over the long term. That's what knew the people get it. Jobs, jobs, right. Read Chris Schroeder's... Um, uh, chair report of his working group. Basically, that is right. We talk about Big bag, big Bang regulatory reform to open space for entrepreneurs and innovation. Those kinds of reforms also open space for small and medium enterprise to form. And, of course, that's what really provides go- jobs in these economies. So the regulatory reform is critical to get at the underlying problem of jobs.
4: Let's come to this side of the room. Abdurahim Fakhar. you had a question? Uh, just behind you, and then we'll, I'll come to you right afterwards, sir. Thank you. Uh, I about, uh,
7: First of all, between,
4: between your uh, uh,
7: excess facial hair and my uh, lack of follicle hair, we can get <laughs> towards some Arab <laughs> balance here. Uh, uh, question. About specifically what you said about uh, uh, Syria, Mr. Hadley, uh, the repercussions on Europe as you uh, described them, the extent of Russia's involvement in in Syria, why should people in the region
2: listen to what you've just said and say, yeah, what they're saying is still relevant? Well, people can listen or not as they see fit. I think what we heard from the region was, um, we need your help if we're going to get these conflicts resolved. And one of the things that was, uh, was done in Ken Pollack's study. It's very interesting data on how do these civil wars end, and a number of them end because outside powers have come in either on one side to win or to deadlock the conflict so that the participants realize that the cost is going up and they don't have a route to it to their preferred outcome. And therefore, they decide to try to bring the violence down. And if we're right about our formula, and if it works, I think the sense we have from the region is people would support it.
4: Uh, this lady right here.
9: Uh, thank you, Atlantic Council. I'm Faye I'm a member of Atlantic Council. Madam Secretary, it's an honor to have you in here. Uh, uh, you mentioned uh, earlier about the Iranian youth. I just want to let you know that as an Iranian-American, we have tried for the past three years to facilitate a conference between University of Berkeley and the Iranian University Sharif. And uh, we're gonna have one coming up in Barcelona, uh, December eight through 10. And this is just to empower the entrepreneurs in Iran. Uh, Again, when you mentioned the fact that there's more than 65% Iranian youth in Iran, pro-West, specifically America, much more so than many of our, our allies in the region, Uh, If the new uh, elect president decided to impose uh, more sanctions in Iran and derail the agreement, I think the very particular population that they will be hurt will be the Iranian youth. So what what do you think about that? Thank you.
1: Well, I I think that I have, first of all, I've made clear that I think that the agreement is a good one um, and worth pursuing. I think that we have to be, careful in terms of just punishing without knowing, I mean, from what I have read, um, the uh, IAEA, as it notifies the Security Council, points out that there are a couple of problems on heavy water on the reactors. They mitigate that. They take care of it. I think we have to, uh, it is an agreement that has a lot of eyes on. And by just loading up uh, to put on sanctions for me, as far as I'm concerned, is not useful. The question is, frankly, the following, and I go back to my toolbox, is whether if Congress threatens to, whether that's kind of um, a spurring on a Damocles sword, but doesn't impose them. But I do think that we should be looking at the behavior and decide that it is a good step forward, specifically on the nuclear issues, but also as a way of opening up. And I just want to say one thing. In 98 when um, we were going through our ways of trying to deal with the Iranian government. I often tell this, but it is worth telling the story. We did not know who was who. And I was having a meeting with Karazi, who had been the the, uh, perm rep when I was. We get into the room. And I look at him and I think, well, he doesn't look exactly the way he did before, but neither do I. And so I said, isn't it great when the UN ambassador becomes the foreign minister? Nothing. Then I say, isn't it terrific if you've actually been here and you know where everything is? Nothing. So I turned to our bench of Iranian experts and I said, is that a Karazi? And they said, we don't know. And that is a sign uh, that we just having the contact is something that's important. By the way, it wasn't Karazi and it was not <laughs>
4: that explains so uh, much uh, did, right,
1: until Kofi came in and said it's the deputy foreign minister <coughs> but just a sign, we have to understand who we're talking to, and those uh, discussions uh, in that field I think have
4: been helpful. We have time for one last question. We'll take this gentleman right here. Can you just wait one second for the microphone? Go ahead,
7: sir. Okay, this is Hussein Saifzadeh. I was the professor of University of Tehran. They purged me because I follow you and you supported our, let's say, liberalism there in Iran. I'm scared a little bit what you said and what Dennis Ross said and many places I said that I think there is a liberalism into it. Could you I hold be- the mic closer to your mouth? I believe years. in your idealistic philosophy which is very pragmatic but is idealist. I believe when Kennedy came, he started, you see, the white revolution in Iran. I was eleven years old. I was imprisoned when I was fourteen years old. Kennedy Revolution created a kind of guerrilla war, radicalism, and made Khomeini extremist. When Carter came to power, Carter started to let's say democratise Iran. But he liberalized Iran, and so many get imprisoned. And then I was the only person in the University of Tehran talking about liberalism, democracy, and unfortunate, <coughs> unfortunate. I was paired, and I was interrogated many times. Why? I think Iran, which is the most developed, because there is philosophy. Even in Turkey, there is not philosophy. I've gone to 22 countries. There is no civil society. The public sphere is imprisoned by the government. How do you want, how do you want to do? I have been to 22 countries of the Middle East, I talk to the people, in Saudi Arabia, when I go for pilgrimage, they hit me, go for prayer, go for prayer, go for prayer. Right. And I say you are a jam you see? But you think that now Iran and United States, as an Iranian American, I say, they are let's say have tacit bargaining to fight against daesh against al Qaeda, against al nusra al hijra all of them but now we said that we have to continue wrong. and so the, who pays the money for al qatar al nusra al takfir al qaeda al taliban all of them
2: who pay Thank i
7: you, very much, you sir. to talk about so this.
2: let me just say this report is really not focused on how do you promote change in in Iran. It is addressing another set of issues, and there are people in the audience more expert on that. Uh, I would just say on the Iran point this. Uh, I was not a big enthusiastic supporter of the Iran nuclear deal, but I think that even critics of the regime, of the deal, are concluding that tearing it up is not the right course for the United States. Um, Making sure Iran stays in the agreement, Madeline and I both agree about that. But Iran's nefarious action in the region, what they are doing in Iraq and Syria and Yemen, has to be addressed. It has to be addressed. There are dumb ways to do it. There are smart ways to do it. I hope we will do it in a smart way. But it is going to have to be addressed. I would also just, you know, um, I think sometimes pursuing our ideals and standing up for our ideals is the height of realism if you really want to move towards a stable, secure, and prosperous future. So we don't apologize for the idealistic piece of this, because we think in the current situation of the Middle East, it's the height of realism. Madam Secretary, I'll give you the last word.
1: Well, let me just say that um, I'm very happy to see everybody here, and we were asked a question at some point as to how this would be transmitted to the new administration. I don't think I'm the one to walk in there, but the bottom line is that I do think that what is important is to spread the word. We are going to be spending a lot of time on this. Uh, We are looking for follow-on projects specifically. Uh, We think that what we need to do is to be part of what this democracy is about is creating the infrastructure for various of these ideas to be taken forward. And I repeat what we said at the beginning, this is going to take a long time. And it is important to the people of America. And and our remembering what our principles are and making very clear what we believe in while we're also pushing for some I agree with you about our principles are the most realistic approach to this. Um, and so we are, you know, Steve and I are in this for quite a long time, and, and and truly have developed a fabulous friendship. And, and I do think that having a bipartisan or nonpartisan approach to this, where we take it more and more to various layers of the public, and to go to the Hill, and spend time with journalists, and to really explain that there's not any, this is not pie in the sky, this is very realistic, it is a roadmap, and it needs the help of the people in this room, and as we spread it, since um, I I do think that the next administration, like all American administrations, actually does listen to public opinion. So thank you all very much for being here.
4: Yeah, I'm just going to ask everybody just to stay seated for uh, a few more minutes. Uh, I'm going to ask Mr. Siegrain to come up. We have one video presentation. (laughs) Madam Secretary and Stephen Hadley, thank you both very much. Thank you. you.
10: We wanted to close with a short video clip. As you have heard, we tried to highlight and report some of the many positive things that are often missed happening in the Middle East um, by Western observers. With that in mind, we organized a video contest. This is, after all, the age of social media. We organized a video contest and encouraged individuals and organizations in the Middle East to submit short YouTube clips about things they found inspiring. You can find some of the best submissions featured on our website, which is mest.atlanticcouncil.org. We wanted to play for you now the prize-winning video, which was produced by two Syrian brothers, Ahmed and Amjad Warda.
9: المنتخب السوري وضرب الجزاء من مرسول السور سوريا قد تحسم المباراة هل سيفعلها المنتخب السوري؟ هل سيحسن البطولة ويفوز بالمباراة؟ هل سيتأسونها بالكعس مع ظلونا يلا يا ماهر سدد حقق النصر الأمان معلقة عليه قلوب ملايين السوري والعرب معك يا ماهر لا تخيب بالأمان حقق
1: مجد آسيا Собра!
10: for the visuals on that. For those who were not able to see the subtitles of that, I would encourage you to go to the website best.atlanticcouncil.org to to see it in its entirety. Um, Before we conclude, we would encourage you to take a copy of the report if you have not done so already. And as the co-chair suggested, please spread the word. Finally, I would ask you to join me in thanking first our moderator for today, Ayman Mohedin, and second, our two fabulous co-chairs, Secretary Albright and Steve Hadley. They've both given us hours and hours of their time over the last 18 months to produce today's report and to bring us all together for this event. So thank you to them as well. Thank you again, everyone, for coming.